0: And this is what he said in verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Um, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, notice on those, he starts that as obedient children. Now, anybody in here that's got kids, have you ever raised children? If you ever try to motivate children, there's really two ways to do it. You can do it in a positive way, and you can do it in a what I would call a a negative way. So, for example, if I want to motivate my boys to do something, there's some positive ways to do it, right? I could I could appeal to their emotions. I could uh, offer them a, a reward. I could, you know, give them good reasons. You know, if you'll do this, you'll grow up to be a fine young man or something like that. I can try to inspire everybody with me. I can give them a lot of positive ways to to do it, okay? And then there's the negative way. If you don't do this, I'm going to hurt you, right? You just say, you, you put a little bit of fear in them. There's positive and then there's fear. Um, now, it would be nice and as a parent if we could be positive all the time, but anybody that's ever raised a child knows that's not possible. Um, they don't always respond to positive reinforcement. They don't always respond to, to, to positive motivation. Sometimes you have to use fear. Sometimes you have to use uh, threats. Um, now, I bring all that up because that is exactly what Peter is going to do in today's verses, okay? He's going to give two motivations for us to live a holy life. One, one of them is going to be a, a negative um, based on fear. The other one is going to be a positive uh, motivation. So let's look at the very first one that he uses, which is fear. Look at verse 17, and we'll just walk through the verse. He said this, And if you call on Him as Father... Now, we've known from the very beginning who this letter is to. This letter is not to unbelievers... Remember in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1 it says what? To those who are elect exiles. Elect means chosen by God. So Peter is writing to Christians. He's writing to true believers. He's writing to people who are born again. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to real believers in, in Jesus Christ. Now, I've said this a few weeks back, and it bears repeating. We hear all the time people say that we're all children of God. We hear that all the time. I see it on church signs. We're all children of God. Folks, that is not true. Let me say it again. That is not true. We are all his creations. That is of course true. But the right to become a child of God is given only to those who are born again. John 1:12 through 13 said this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you ride by a church sign, or you see some preacher stand up, or you see some politician and say, we're all children of God, that's not true. That is not true. That is nowhere in the Bible. We are all his creations, but only those who are born again become children of God. And when we become children of God, when we are born again and and adopted into the family of God, our relationship with God changes. He now not only sees us differently, He deals with us differently, and now He sees us as family. Galatians 4, 6 says this, "...and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father." We, as, as children of God now, born again, we call God our Father. Okay? Not, I mean, not just in some ethereal theological sense, but we, can lit, we have been adopted into His family. So Peter here, when he says, if you call Him Father, he's saying, if you are a child of God. So he's talking to people who are the children of God, okay? Now, that fact alone is wonderful. If we didn't go any farther, the fact that you and I actually can call God our Father, we could, just, we could just stop right there and really go no further. It means that we are the objects of His special love. I, I said this a few weeks ago, right? I love kids, but I don't love your kids the way I love my kids, right? Every, every father loves their own children in a special way. Well, let me tell you, God loves His children Differently than people who are not His children. He loves them in a very special way. It means that God cares for us. Listen, I love my children. I love my grandchildren. Um, but I can tell you the love God has for His children dwarfs my love for my children. It just dwarfs it. There's a, uh, it means that God is, is tender with us. See, I, I love this part. When I think about God as my Father... I think First of all, I think about the things that I feel. When my kids were little, I mean, I loved rocking my babies. I, and Kathy will tell you, I'd rock them all. i just rock, rock, rock. I loved cuddling with them. I, I loved holding them. I wanted them to feel safe. I wanted them to, to, to feel protected. And now that I've got grandchildren, I get to do it all over again. And it's the most awesome thing in the world. And again, it makes them feel safe. It makes them feel special. It creates that bond. Uh, with you. I wanted them to know that I'd always be there uh, for them, that they could ask me anything, tell me anything. Let me tell you, how can God the Father do any less than that? Listen to Matthew 7 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Now, let me tell you, I am born evil. I'm born with a wicked heart. And if I as an earthly father want to care and love and cuddle my children, how much more does God feel that? Are, are you with me? How much more is God? He's far more of those good things than I could ever be. And I think we forget about that sometime, that somehow he's not less, he has to be more than we are, which, which uh, Jesus said in Matthew seven eleven. Now here's the thing. He is this wonderful Father who loves us and cares for us. And then Peter says this, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Wow, that came out of nowhere. He says, "You, He's your heavenly Father, but don't forget, He's going to be your judge. See, Peter is reminding us that that same God that, that we call Father... Is also going to be our our judge. And here's the thing. He shows no favoritism. He is impartial. Go back and read it again. He judges impartially. That means that even uh, each one of us who are his children, one day we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and we will be judged for our works. We'll be judged. And and I'll talk about that here in just a minute. And God's not going to say, well, son, you just did the best you could. You just did the best you could. It's okay. Just forget about that. No, he judges impartially. He judges impartially. He may be our father, but he's not going to show any favoritism. You know, there are families around, and we've studied this in the Bible, where a father has multiple kids, and they, for whatever reason, they favor one over the other. God doesn't do that. God doesn't show any favoritism. So listen, we can climb up on his lap, and we can pour our heart out to him, and we can know that he loves us, but we better not forget, better not forget that He's also going to serve as our judge. He's going, to, he's going to judge the very motives of our hearts, the words that we utter and the words that we say. Um, Andrew McLaren said this, I suppose in Peter's days, as in our day, there were people that so fell in love with one aspect of the divine nature that they had no eyes for any other. And they so magnified the thought of the Father that they forgot the thought of the judge. That error has been committed over and over again in all ages, so the church as a whole, one may say, has gone from one extreme to the other instead of doing as Peter does here. Andrew McLaren wrote that, uh, Alexander McLaren wrote that over a hundred years ago, but it's still true today. See, the pendulum, people, you tend to see God as this loving Heavenly Father or you tend to see Him as this stern judge. And the pendulum kind of goes back and forth. The balance is that he's both. He is a loving Heavenly Father, but he is also a just judge. And he has to be both. He can't be one or the other. But we tend to try to see him as one or the other. And I think in today's culture, we're, it, all you ever hear about anymore is God is a God of what? Love. And he is. But he's also a God of justice. And we don't hear that at hardly at all talked about. And, and, and you see, our culture tends to reflect this. This is a song by George Strait, a very popular song that was out a few years ago, and some of you have heard it. He said, I got sent home from school one day with a shiner on my eye. Fighting was against the rules, and it didn't matter why. When Dad got home, I told that story just like I'd rehearsed, and I stood there on those trembling knees, and I waited for the worst. And then the dad comes in and he says this. He says, let me tell you a secret about a father's love, a secret that my daddy said was just between us. He said, daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end. Amen. Y'all have heard that song, right? Now that's a, that's a good song, great song, you know, catchy song. But now listen to this verse. Last night I dreamed i died and stood outside those pearly gates. And suddenly I realized there must be some mistake. If they knew half the things I've done, they'll never let me in. And somewhere from the other side, I heard those words again. Let me tell you a secret about a father's love, a secret that my daddy said was just between us. He said, Daddies don't just love their children every now and again. It's a love without end. Amen. You see what he's inferring? What he's inferring there is he's going to get to heaven. He do not deserve to get in, but God just loves him so much, he's going to let him in anyway. He's just going to overlook. See, that's a, the, the, it, it feels good, right? It, it kind of makes you tear up just a little bit, but it ain't true. See, when you get to the pearly gates, he's going to say, Do you know my son? Have you put your faith in my son? Have you been covered by the blood of my son? It's, it's not going to be a love thing. He's already showed his love in that he sent Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. He's already showed his love. The question is, did you respond to that love? And if you wait to that day, it's going to be too late. He ain't going to just put the blinders and say, you know what, just forget about that. You did the best you could. That's not the way it's going to work. See, this is the one, to me, missing crucial note in, in modern Christianity today. And, it, and it's one of the main reasons why I think so many in the church are just carbon copies of people outside the church. And that is, we think grace means there's nothing to fear in our behavior. That people are out just doing things. They're, I mean, they're just doing, they're sinning. And they think, well, you know, God will forgive me. It's all about grace. See, the threat of judgment has no place in our lives I- anymore. But see, I don't see anything like that in today's passage, do you? God, See, God is not, a lot of modern day parents, they're, they're quick to just let things go right? Um, I, you know, they just let things go. I, I, I've seen people, they'll tell their kid, don't do that, and the kid will do it. And they'll say, don't do that again, and the kid will do it. And don't do that again, and the kid will do it. There's no, They got no teeth, man. The kid the kid knows it, right? And, and a child will just keep pushing the line. You, you let them move there, they'll push the line. And you let them move there; they'll just. And after a while, they realize there ain't really no line. You say there is, but there's not. Let me tell you, folks: when God says there's a line, there's a line. God says there's a line. He don't play. He don't play. Don't make the mistake of seeing God that way—that somehow that He just loves you so much that He's going to forget about all the things that you're doing. It's not going to work that way. Now, let me just quickly say this, because we may have some people in here that don't understand the concept of judgment and Christians. As a Christian, as a born-again believer, you are under no danger of being judged for your sin. Uh, Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. If you have asked Jesus Christ into your life, if you have put your faith in Him, then your sin is covered. Your past sin, your present sin, and even your future sin, it's covered. It's under the blood of Jesus. You see, Jesus has already paid for our sin with his death on the cross. There, there's nothing left for us to pay for. It's over. But Paul tells us that our works, the things that we do as Christians, will be tested with fire at the judgment seat of Christ. First Corinthians 3:11 through15 says this, "For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Now, if anyone builds on that foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. For example, what I'm doing here today, standing in front of you, teaching the Word of God, I will be tested, this will be judged. This will be judged. Why were you doing it, Derek? Were you doing it so people would come up to you and pat you on the back and tell you what a great Christian? If I'm doing it for that, that's wood, hay, and straw, and it'll be burned up. Jesus said one time to the Pharisees, He said, if you do good works to be so that you get the approval of men, that's your reward. You don't get anything else. That's it. If you're doing your good works so men can pat you on the back, enjoy that pat in the back because that's all you're ever going to get. But if I'm doing this for a different reason, if I'm doing it because I love Jesus Christ and I want to honor Jesus Christ and I want to be a part of the ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth and I'm doing it for that, then guess what? It's gold. It's silver. It's precious stones. And I'll get rewarded for that. See, everything we do... You, some people are sitting, in, will be sitting in church today because they love Jesus. Some people will be sitting in church today because somebody made them come. Some people would be doing it because they want to honor God. Some people would be doing it because they're doing it out of some sense of duty. See, the Bible says God knows our hearts. He knows what we're doing and why we're doing it. And one day, we'll stand before Him and it'll all be laid out. And anything that you did out of selfish motives, anything you did out of for any reason other than to honor and worship Him and glorify Him, the Bible says it'll be burned up as with fire. Now, I don't know what that means. I can tell you this. I don't like fire anywhere close to me, right? I don't want to be burned with fire or anything like that. I don't know what that means. So I'm just, I just want to make sure that when I'm, when I'm there, that I'm there for the right reasons. Paul goes on. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So here's the thing. Knowing that one day you and I, as born-again children of God, will stand before him and answer for our works, how should that motivate us? Listen to what Peter says. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time here on this earth conduct yourself with fear see listen we know this time that we have on this earth is just temporary right we talk about this week after week this is just temporary and we know that now we know Paul, uh, peter said we've got an impartial judge waiting for us on the other side and he's going to judge fairly he's not going to let us off the hook Peter says, therefore, walk in fear while you're here. Walk in fear. Conduct yourself with fear. Let fear be a motivating factor in your conduct or your behavior. Let it motivate you to to holiness. Now, I want to talk about this fear for a minute. I hope you understand that the fear Peter's talking about is not a a, a paralyzing fear. Um, It's not a fear of dread or terror. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, it's the kind of fear you should have knowing that one day you're going to have to give an account. Okay? Here's a good example, I think. We, we've all been in school from one time or another, either either in high school, some of us in college, and, and maybe some of you beyond that. If you ever take a class in school, right? you, you go into that class and you know this class is going to last a semester. And the teacher says, at the end of the semester, you got a final exam. And this final exam is, is you know, a, a large percentage of your grade. And if you pass it, you're probably going to pass the class. If you fail it, you're probably going to fail the class. Now, th- it's still a few months off. It's four or five months off. But you know it's coming, right? Now, there are two basic responses to this knowledge. Some people, there's always people like this, they'll just goof off, Right? They, they, they got the whole semester, so you know, they'll get up in the morning. I don't really want to go to class today, and so they stay home. Um, they don't do their homework. They don't read the assignments. They don't study the lessons. They don't do their papers. On, you know, they just kind of... Are you with me? And they know, they know there's, a, there's an end date out there. They know it's coming, but they just... For whatever reason, they just can't see past the weekend. Right? They just I'll deal with that when the when the time comes. And then as time goes by they get right to the end and the teacher says, Okay, in two weeks we got the final exam and what do they do? They panic. They absolutely panic. Fear and dread grips them. And then of course they run around to all the people who are doing the right thing and they start trying to get their notes and can you help me? What do you think's gonna be on the test? But let me tell you it's too late it's too late. They're completely and totally unprepared. They're not going to pass that final exam. See, that was not the type of fear the final exam was supposed to create in them. See, there are others, though, who do the right thing. They don't want to experience that panic feeling. So what do they do? They, they do something about it. They discipline themselves they go to class. They, they do the assignments. They, you know if, if, some, if they've got to read a 500-page textbook, they don't wait until the last two weeks. They read it you know 15, uh, 20 pages at a time. They, they get it done. They write their papers early so they don't stack up and they don't get behind. They don't skip class. They take notes. They study. They do all the right things. Now, let me tell you, there's still a fear in them about the final. It's a fear of accountability, but it's not the dread and the panic of the person who's not getting ready. See, the fear of that final exam motivates them early to do the right thing, to get their life and their, and their studies in, in order and do what they need to do. See, that's the way fear should motivate us. That's the way fear should motivate us. Matthew twenty four forty four. Jesus said this, Therefore... You also, be ready. Because the Son of Man is coming in an hour. You don't expect Him. See, the very fact that we know Jesus is coming back, Jesus said, be ready. Be ready now. Don't wait to the end. You know the, the parable of the ten virgins, right? Some of them were ready and some of them weren't. And the ones that weren't ready, when, they, they, when He came, they, they, they it was too late. It was, it was too late. Be ready now. Let, let that fear be the right kind of fear, a motivating fear, that, so that we prepare ourselves early and don't get caught with the other one. Now, the second motivation that Peter is going to use is a positive one, and it's the word ransom. Let's read verses 18 and 19. He says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or without spot. So again, he gives us one negative, which is using fear, but then he turns around and says, remember, you were bought with the precious blood of Christ. This is something we, I think, you know, we go through life and we don't think about enough, the cost of our salvation. The cost of our salvation. I was, when I was preparing this at home, I've got an office and I was up on my bulletin board and I've got these pictures of my family and, you know, my children, my grandchildren. And, and I just like to look at them sometimes and it just reminds me why I'm working. It reminds me why I'm doing the things that I do. It We'd use that as motivation, right? I mean, our family can, can motivate us. See, that's what Peter's doing here. Peter is basically saying this, if you, can't, if you think of Jesus Christ and him on the cross and the blood pouring out of his body, what it costs, if that doesn't motivate you, if that doesn't move you to holiness, let me tell you, there's something wrong with you. I don't know any other way to say it. If that doesn't motivate you to be better than you are, you need to really look at yourself and, and look at your relationship with Him because something's something's not not right. Now, a few things about ransom. First of all, ransom implies bondage. See, when we use words like ransom and redemption today in our culture, they sound like theological terms because that's really the only way we use them. But for Peter's readers, those words were everyday words. Okay? See there were million, when this letter was written in the roman empire there were literally millions of slaves millions of slaves um a lot of slaves had been born into slavery uh some had been enslaved rome of course was uh notorious for going into a land and conquering that land and when they would conquer that land they would they bring back sometimes uh you know half the population as slaves So there were just all kind of people in Rome that had just been torn away from their families, torn away from their their countries, and made slaves there in Rome. Others uh, in that day, if you got in debt, there was no welfare system or anything like that. So if you got in debt, you had to sell yourself into slavery. That was the only way you could survive and somehow try to pay that debt off. So so literally, I I forget the numbers, I should have looked this up, but... Um, there were literally millions of slaves in Rome when this letter was, was written. And every one of those slaves knew that they were in bondage. Every one of them knew that they were the property of another human being. Every one of them knew that they were not free to do what they wanted to do. And see, what Peter wants us to know and wants us to remember is this. Every person who has not been ransomed by Christ is in the same bondage Instead of being in bondage to a human being, you're in bondage to sin and you're in bondage to death. You're in bondage. You're a slave. You you think you can run around and do whatever you want to do, but the fact is you are bound into sin. And, And Peter calls this the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Did you know that life is absolutely futile apart from Jesus Christ? I mean, just think about it. How many people out there today are living life, and they're just trying to grab all the things they can grab while they're living. Get all the toys they can get while they're there. You work hard. you get it. By the way, you get a few things, you lose a few things. So you get them a few more things, and you lose a few things, and at the end of it, you get sick and die. I mean, seriously, that's life. That's, that's, that's how a lot of people are, are living life. If you're lucky... If you're lucky, you can stave off debt, death until you're 70, 80, or 90. If you're not lucky, you die before then. But it's, everybody's going to die. And what's the point of it? You can't take none of it with you. Not a single thing. It's futile. It, it, it is the definition of futility. And see, only Christ can ransom us from this futility of this life, the futility of this bondage to sin and death. See, He forgives us our our sins and He gives us power to live a holy life. He takes the sting out of physical death through the power of the resurrection. This is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that in in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, your labor is not futile. What you're doing in the Lord matters. What you're doing in the Lord, you're going to be rewarded for. So it's not futile. There's purpose in Christ. Outside of Christ, there's no purpose whatsoever. Ransom always involves cost. In, in a Roman times, if you wanted to ransom a slave, we, we think of the word ransom when somebody's been kidnapped, right? Somebody's kidnapped, we pay a ransom and we buy them back. Well, that's exactly what ransom means. In Roman times, you could ransom a slave or redeem a slave out of slavery and buy their uh, freedom. And that always happened with gold or silver, some type of, of precious metal, because that's what the world values above anything else. But Peter says those are perishable things. that Those things are going to go away. They are cheap in comparison with what you've been bought with. And that is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why did it take His blood to ransom me? Why? Why did God have to do it that way? Let me tell you, God is a God of love. Do we all know that? I hope we do. But as we've seen, God is a God of justice. You see, if God, if you get to heaven and God just lets you off the hook and your sin is never paid for, He might be a God of love but he wouldn't be a God of justice, would he? What would you think about a judge that somebody goes before the judge and they've committed these heinous crimes and the judge just says, you know what, I'm feeling good today, don't worry about it, you're free. Is that a just judge? Of course not. You might say he's a nice guy, he might even be a loving guy, but he's not a just judge. Don't we want just judges? Don't we want judges that'll mete out justice? Well, God is the epitome of that. See, He's love, but He also has to be a God of justice. In the cross, God is both. In the cross, God is both. He shows His love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But His justice is satisfied by the precious blood of Jesus. Our sins are completely paid for. See, only Christ could do that. Only Christ, the only perfect man to ever live, without sin, without spot, without blemish, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the cost of our redemption. That was the cost of our ransom. Imagine for me, if you will, a husband. There's a situation with a husband and a wife, and the husband risked his life to save his wife from a murderer. And in that, in that situation, the husband is killed. In other words, he literally gives his life for the life of his, of his wife, okay? Now, imagine that same woman after his funeral. She goes and takes up a relationship with that murderer. What would you think about her? What would you think about a woman who, who so disrespects her husband like that that she would go take up with the man that killed him? What would you think about that? Let me tell you. For us to continue living in sin after Jesus died for us makes us just like that woman. Just like that woman. Can you imagine Jesus sheds His blood for us and dies for us? And then we, go back, we just go right back to the sin. We're like a dog that goes right back to His vomit. And we take up with that sin. We're just like that. See, that is precisely Peter's argument today. Why would you do that? God ransomed us. He bought us out of sin and death. And the cost of that was was His own Son. We dare not go back to that sin. We stay as far away from that sin as we possibly can. We live a wholly separated life because of just, just one motivating factor is that precious blood of Jesus. The third thing that Peter wants to point out, and we'll close here, that ransom is of God. There's a tendency in the human heart toward pride. I know I got it. We all tend to think, boy, look at me. I I did this of my own volition. We boast in our own accomplishments. Peter's not going to let that happen. He wants us to know that that act of redemption or that act of ransom is totally God. See, God planned our ransom before we ever even sin. 1 Peter 1.20, he said this, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. See, that means before God ever created the world, before you were even a thought, Jesus already planned to come and die. He knew exactly what was going to happen. See, the cross was never God's plan B. Some people think, well, Adam and Eve screwed it all up. God had to kind of think on His feet and come up with plan B. No. It wasn't that at all. Revelation 13, 8 says this He is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. God knew exactly what was going to happen. And so before He ever created anything, He was already planned to go to that cross. He ordained that well in a, in a, ahead of or in advance of the creation of the human race. Now, at the proper time, God executed the plan. 1 Peter 1, 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times. At just the right time in human history, God sent His Son into the world, and we had nothing to do with it. No, we, he didn't give us a vote and say, hey, do you think we ought to do it this way? And no, It had nothing to do with us. We didn't even exist yet. But then the time came where God applied it to us. Listen to this, 1 Peter one twenty. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. For you. For you. For me. See, this was was personal. Christ died for your sake. Ephesians 1 4 said this, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in Him. Before the world began, God chose me. God chose me before the foundation. I had nothing to do with it. And then Jesus came and died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And one day he knows at 11 years old, that boy is going to walk down an aisle and give his heart to me. I'm going to die for him right now. I choose him. That's incredible. It was personal for him. It wasn't just some kind of blank check. I'm just going to die and and whoever whoever wants to come can come. No. No, that's not biblical at all. He knew you. He knew you intimately before you ever even existed. And finally, God completed it. Verse 20 uh, 20 and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. God raised Jesus Christ bodily from the grave. Peter and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of that. And that proves that God is able to raise you and me. See, the fact is, even if we suffer as Christians, as, as the people were who Peter's writing to, even to the point of martyrdom, we, can, we still know, because he raised Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise me from the dead, and he'll keep all his promises to me. I know that. See, this is this great salvation that Peter has been talking about now. We've been talking about for three months. What a great salvation that he has purchased for us at the cost of his own son. I'll leave you with one scripture. The writer of Hebrews says this How shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Next week, we turn to uh, verse 22. And the title of our lesson will be The Enduring Word.